Welcome back to the Engaged Prospect podcast. My name is Dan Hirsch, and I'm president and founder of Engaged Prospect. Today, I have David Premer with me, who is founder at Cerebral Selling. David is a, an author of a book. He is a public speaker. He's a sales trainer and works with a lot of different clients, um, helping them understand how best to reach their potential customers, get new potential customers. And um, he brings, from what I can see and what I'm excited to talk about today, a different spin on how the sales process and the sales industry is. Such an intellect that he's going to share with us today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. David, welcome to the show. Oh, great. That was an awesome intro. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me, Dan. Great to be here with you. No, uh, no pressure. I mean, I basically just said you're no. super smart and uh, now you have 30 minutes to, uh, to either build that up or, or tell me otherwise. <laughs> I will tell you I'm an idiot. So I'm excited to learn from you. <laughs> All good. So, tell us, let, let's get started maybe with a little bit of your background. Just tell us, tell us um, how you got into the sales world in the first place. I know it was an interesting path. Well, I think everyone has an interesting path. You know, very few people get into sales as a career on purpose. I always say, you know, people get into this profession by accident, uh, which is rare among professions, but uh, I was no different. I started my career as a research scientist about 20 years ago and got into sales at the turn of the dot-com boom uh, by accident. I ended up uh, joining a startup around kind of 1999, 2000. Um, it was a small growing company at the time, about 20 people and absolutely fell in love with sales. I actually, I joined the company as a sales engineer or solutions consultant. So, you know, some people think that the, the best entry point is your kind of your first sales job is a BDR, SDR, making cold calls. But uh, I was a functional technical product expert given my kind of technical background, uh, got into sales, absolutely loved it. And then over the course of like the next 20 years, spent my time across four amazing uh, high growth tech startups. Uh, three of those startups ended up getting acquired one that I helped start in 2008 was acquired by Salesforce. So I came over to Salesforce, spent five amazing years there. Pardon me, seeing how the, uh, the sales machines were built kind of operationally and culturally at scale. And uh, after all that time, there wasn't anything I could think of that was more worthwhile to do than to teach the art and science of the profession that I love so much, uh, which is what I do through my practice now at Cerebral Selling. That is fantastic. We'll get back to kind of your, your experience and, and learning a couple huge things in just a minute. But um, with Cerebral Selling, tell us, tell us about some of your business. I gave an overview, but I'm sure I, I missed some key pieces. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I realized over the course of time was that, you know, people love to buy things, but they just really hate talking to salespeople. And in fact, if you want to quiet a room of salespeople down really fast, just ask for a show of hands and ask them how many people here love talking to salespeople right? Like <laughs> talking to salespeople is no one's most favorite thing to do, including salespeople. And so wow. this, do, do you agree? I don't know. I don't want to put words I in do, your mouth here. I, as, and that's interesting. I, I do agree. I think, I think I can appreciate a good sales call. And I don't know if that's a, quali a qualifier for your question, but yeah, oftentimes you get some of those crummy sales calls that just really turn you off to even what you do for a living. 
That's right. Well, you know, even when I ask people, I say, you know, do you like talking to salespeople? And, and maybe in a room of like 100 people, there might be a few people that keep their hands raised. But I say, hey, look, are you saying that because you have a professional curiosity around salespeople? Like you're a salesperson. And so I always am curious about how other salespeople, you know, run their sales motion. And, and most of those people will say, yes, like that, that's why I like talking to salespeople. And you're absolutely right. Talking to good salespeople and having good productive conversations is always appreciated. But the challenge is, you know, salespeople, unfortunately, don't always... I don't want to make an unnecessary tie-in here, but they don't always sell the way they buy. You know, as salespeople, we often go out, and this is what I realized, um, is that we often go out and we execute tactics that are not necessarily unethical and they're not categorically ineffective, but they just wouldn't work on us if we found ourselves on the buying side of that transaction. And so, you know, I realized as I was kind of, you know, had this epiphany, you know, of course, at, at Salesforce, which is an awesome company, and I love my time there, at the end of the kind of the very busy periods where you're just trying to hustle and generate as much revenue as you can, you kind of fall into this zone where, you're, you know, you're just in full on sales mode, but then you would go back to your desk, or I would go back to my desk, and the phone would ring off the hook with people trying to sell me stuff, and I wasn't having any of it. Right. And so this idea of selling the way you buy was something that was kind of always became very clear and present in my head. And so I said, well, like, what's the secret then? Like, how can I go out there and execute my sales motion in a very human, very like high ethical, like very high conviction way um, and inspire my team to do the same? And so I started to develop tactics that were kind of and approaches that were rooted in science and empathy that allowed me to, to execute my sales motion highly, in a highly effective way but made me feel really good. It didn't make me feel gross, maybe infused me and my team with really high conviction. And so uh, cerebral selling is a, is a practice built all around connecting with customers on a very human level by helping manifest these kind of very authentic sales motion tactics. You used the word empathy in there, and I know that that's, that's a big word, especially today. How do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things when you think about empathy. Number one is just you know d don't be a jerk, right? Don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you. But you know another piece of empathy is also recognizing the journey of the customer and the buyer and what they need in order to feel comfortable with you, in order to convert, in order to understand your value. And sometimes and this is I want to make this very important distinction: being empathetic does not give you the excuse to be lazy as a sales rep. So as a sales rep, you might say to yourself, you know what, I, when I'm a customer, I don't like to be bothered. So you know what, I'm not going to bother my customers, right? I'm not going to call them, you know, I'm not going to ping them on LinkedIn or, you know, have their phone ring off the hook or send them all this stuff. Because you know what, if I was a customer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. But that's actually absolutely not the case. And the example I often give is I say, you know, when my, when my wife asks me to do something, do I do it on the first time she asks? I don't know, Dan, do, can you maybe answer this question for me? Yeah, well, David, we're recording currently. So yes, always the first time it's <laughs> asked of me, I do it. <laughs> and then maybe off the air, I'll tell you the real <laughs> That's right. No, I, in, fact, in fact, my mom always had this, um, this magnet on our refrigerator. Actually, my stepdad, I think, bought it. But it, it was on our refrigerator all while I was growing up that said um, my... My, wow, gosh almighty, it's been, sorry, 15 years since I've thought of this <laughs> magnet. Some, something along the lines of, honey, I know, you, 
I know you asked me to do this. You don't have to keep reminding me every six months to finish it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's exactly it, right? And, and in fact, like in the modern world, like buyers are the same. So, you know, one of the reasons why sales is so hard nowadays is, is modern buyers are just actually much more difficult to connect with. And in, and in fact, the, the number of outreach attempts it's, it's taken to connect with a buyer doubled between 2010 and 2018, I think from kind of four to, to eight connection attempts. And so if you're calling on a, a customer prospect and you're calling three, three, four times, and you're not connecting, you're going to lose. And it is, what's really interesting is that after you end up connecting with a customer, and you're adding value and you, you, know, you deliver a great solution, they thank you. And I can't tell you how many times you know, I kept after a customer that I knew I could help and I wasn't annoying. I tried to add value at every step and, and try to be very respectful. And at the end of the day, they would say, thank you, David, for keeping on me. I know I needed to do this. And so you know, being empathetic does not give you the excuse to be lazy because customers need your help. And sometimes you know, that means that you need to be politely persistent. So when I, back to your initial question, you think about empathy, it's this idea of like, don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you, certainly, but then also being very mindful to what the, the journey of the buyer's like and architecting your sales motion to support them along that journey. That's a, that's a really great lesson for, for all organizations, whether you're a sales rep of 20 years, whether you're just getting started in the field, you might be an entrepreneur who sales is just a part of what you do, but knowing, knowing that it takes a long time to generate these conversations to begin to develop relationships. And at the same time that if you give up after a few times thinking, I don't want to bother them, you're actually doing everybody a disservice because you're, you're not giving yourself a chance to be able to help them. I, that's very interesting to me. What, what do those customers think about the repeated outreach? You mentioned a minute ago, um, feeling, feeling like you are providing value every step of the way. And once you do get them into a conversation, have you, have you heard from them in the past or with your clients that are, are calling on buyers? Do you, do you hear things like, I don't know. Th thanks for staying up on me or geez, I'm sorry. I haven't called you back. Or is it always like you're so persistent. I don't want to talk to you. I assume it's not that answer. <laughs> no. Well, it can't just be, you know, 16 emails saying, what about now? What about now? Do you want to talk now? Like that, that's, that's not valuable. And in fact, one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the scientific principle of reciprocity, right? Which is, you know, we do something nice for someone, and they feel indebted to do something nice for us. And there's lots of ways of adding reciprocity. Like if you think about the fact that you might have to reach out to this customer a whole bunch of times, I mean, you don't have to think of like a brand new reason every single time, but you know, I always encourage my clients, like think about like, what's the gift that you're gonna be bringing this customer? Like what's the thing that they're gonna like look at and say, oh, like that's so nice that Dan, you know, thought of me in that way. And and I don't want you to think that like sometimes a gift can be an actual gift. Like sometimes it can be an article or a book or, you know, piece of content that's hopefully not on your website or completely self-serving that kind of says to the customer, hey, look, I was thinking about you and your business and your industry. And I, I took the time to source this insight because I thought it would be helpful. Certainly those are good too. But simple things. I wrote an article just very recently um, about this just idea of doing your homework. Like do your homework. I'll tell you, I get prospected into all the time, you know, especially now. 
And you know, it's staggering how many people who reach out to me have not done their homework. It's not only a generic outreach message like, hey, David, I thought I saw you work at Cerebral Selling and I thought we could help you do A, B, and C. That's bad enough. But people are reaching out with, with outreaches that are completely incorrect in terms of what I do in my business, how many people I have, whether I'm hiring or not. It just shows that you did absolutely no research. And so think about it. when you get a call or an email or an outreach from a, a, a vendor or a salesperson who said, hey, you know, hey, look, Dan, I, I saw you, you run this great podcast. I've listened to a few episodes. I especially like the one where you talked about this. And, you know, I was thinking one of the ways that you know, we might be able to help is by doing A, B, and C. And here's some specific customer stories and they, whatever it is. Just the fact that you did the research, you listened to an episode of, of our podcast, or you, you put in just a little bit of effort to personalize, that drives reciprocity too. Because now I'm like, oh my gosh, this person sat there and did all this research. I at least, at the very least, owe them a response. Even if I'm not going to buy anything from them at the end of the day, I will at least get back to them. And I'll tell you, like as a seller, and I'm sure you, know, you and your listeners can appreciate this as well, the worst thing you can have as a seller is you know, an outreach to a customer who never gets back to you, who ghosts on you, right? So when you think about empathy and reciprocity, adding value can be as simple as doing your homework before you reach out to a customer with some really great context. That is absolutely right. And, you know, I was thinking about a great example and a terrible example. Back to the very first thing we talked about, which is like, do you like talking to salespeople? If somebody said that to me, boy, I was listening to this podcast and blah, blah, blah. Actually, let me, let me give you a, a better example because it's truthful. I got an email once with somebody saying, this will frame how important this is and what you're saying in a really good way because it was actually a negative email. Somebody emailed me and, and basically said, I disagree with your point in the, in the blog post that you wrote. But just because they read that and had a, a, a very polite way of saying, you know, I actually think the opposite and here's why and I'd love to talk to you about it. I was 100% on board to have a conversation with that person. Not from a debate or an argument standpoint, but from a, wow, he took time to read my, my blog post. He has his own thoughts. I definitely want to have a conversation with this guy. Another negative example would be I get all the time companies in my space emailing me saying, do you need help generating new business? We, we do training or outsource sales or we can get you leads. That's what my business does. And so that person clearly did nothing to understand who we are or why we might need their service. Absolutely. Well, in fact, sometimes what I'll do is I'll reach back out to those people and I'll say, I'm curious, does this tactic work for you? Do people respond and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for reaching out with your like generic message. And in fact, you know, and, and, and they usually, there's usually silence. Um, or sometimes <laughs> they'll say, you know, I, and I actually talk about this in my book, where, um, you know, someone reached out to me with this kind of generic thing. And I said, you know what, and I, what I found was, I want to, like, I feel like these are baby chicks. And I'm not, this is not a juvenile reference. But when I see a salesperson, who's kind of executing these old school tactics, I think about like a baby chick falling out of a nest. And I say, you know, I, I want to help you. Because here's the thing, like, if you keep going out, and you keep acting this way, you're not only going to be unsuccessful, but you're going to just ruin sales for everyone because now when i reach out and let's say like i'm a better salesperson than you are and i'm more empathetic and i'm kinder to my customers and i try to add value they're going to be more resistant 
to me because of you, because you ruined, you ruined it. So I try to help them. And, you know, I, I try to uh, create content and articles that I can very easily send to these people to, to kind of help them understand why what they're doing is not that effective and some alternatives to help uh, up their game. And I did this with a BDR who reached out to me years ago at my last VP role. And I ended up having this amazing discussion with him. And, you know, he, and I talk about it in the book, but he said, you know, my, I hope my manager doesn't like read what I'm about to type here. Cause a lot of people have all of their emails kind of just automatically funnel into their CRM. But he said, you know, while I would have liked to have booked a meeting with you today, like this conversation has been super valuable. Right. And, and the whole pretext of, Oh, I'm going to reach out with this generic, you know, kind of drive by pitch was, was dropped. And he realized, you know, and he's like, look, I know what I'm doing is, is probably not the most effective. And so I, I do enjoy those conversations and trying to being, being able to help people. Cause I actually do feel and believe that these salespeople that are going out and executing these poorly orchestrated tactics, I believe a lot of them know what they're doing. Meaning they know that these tactics are drive by and generic and they're just doing them because they think that's what salespeople do. When in fact, they absolutely need to stop doing these things. That's really interesting. And um, just, just so you know, 16 minutes ago, I got an email in my spam folder that is the exact thing I'm talking about. Dan, circling back about my company, XYZ, to save you from digging through your inbox, I guarantee your firm a certain number of quality meetings with prospects each month. If you're uninterested, just let me know and I'll stop reaching out. Be a 15 minutes next week. Thanks. <laughs> I feel I feel like one getting into the spam box is a red flag and granted that happens to 20 to 30 percent of your emails anyway but that that's no good and number two that's what my company does so I don't know if that's a good good uh, good set of research <laughs> also I mean you know and I, I have this discussion with a lot of my clients I was having a conversation yesterday with a a, a, a managed network service provider Right. And so they provide all sorts of technology for your business and office and servers and backup and all these kinds of things. And that's all great, but there's like a million people that do that. And so the question is, and he actually reached out to me because he said, I, I saw one of your articles and you talked about this concept called the sea of sameness, which is what I refer to as just kind of just sounding the same as everyone else. And when you're in an industry or you sell a product that has competitors, which we all do, you know, you might think that you're this this unique snowflake, but there's a million people that do what you do. There's a million people to do what I do. And so when you reach out, if you just say the same thing as everyone else, even if your content is accurate, oh, we help generate leads. And you know, if you don't like them then money back guarantee and you have 15 minutes, like that might be a good pitch in isolation. But when you find yourself in a sea of sameness where a million vendors are reaching out to me and they're saying the exact same thing, how do I differentiate? I'll tell you, I don't know what it is lately. I've been getting a lot of LinkedIn connection requests for people who run private groups for CEOs, a private online club for CEOs. And I'm, I'm getting all of these mess. We run a private club for online CEOs to help share and da, 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 da. And like, it all sounds the same. It all sounds the same. You got to figure out how to break out of that sea of sameness. That's really interesting. And, and not only, actually, so I don't want to tie it into what you're saying, but I have a question that may be related to that. What is your take on organizations that their value proposition has been, we provide the best customer service. Uh, our, our service to our clients is phenomenal. Um, I know now, right now, COVID-19 for full disclosure, this is being recorded on 
what they say, the 15th of May. So we're, we're right in COVID-19. Um, you used the word empathy earlier, which I feel is super important today. And uh, it always is, but even more so now. The, the question though is, so, so how do you prove, like right now you need to show your clients that what you sold them of the service you'd provide is like on point, right? We need to serve our customers more than ever. Uh, because of the way the world is, but how do you how do you break out of the sea of sameness when that's your pitch? When customer service is your pitch, like we provide amazing customers. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I know I'm, I'm I don't want to stump you, but I'm I'm actually really curious about your take on this. Well, like you have to, you know, if there are certain things that all sound good at some point in time. So, for example, you know, you might say, well, we provide great customer service, and if you work in an industry where uh, you know customer service is a big issue, then that could be good. But now all of a sudden, if you're like in the financial services industry and you start a, f- a firm where you say, oh, we provide world-class service at very low fees, that may have worked you know, five years ago, but everyone says that now. So you, what, you, what that means is you need to go somewhere else. You need to get more specific. So for example, you might say, well, we provide great customer service, but maybe you can make that even more specific. So for example, one of my clients provides uh, a cloud accounting software. It's really like kind of billing and invoicing and time tracking and these kinds of things. And they have great customer service too, but their specific audience, they are targeting uh, like freelancers and independent contractors. So they might say, look, as an independent contract, like great customer service is one thing, but we realize, you know, the reason we provide great customer service is because we primarily work with freelancers and, and uh, entrepreneurs who have zero financial or accounting background, right? And so now all of a sudden, that claim of great financial service is further targeted by the fact that we only work with people who, you know, who need to solve this need, but you do not have like the expertise in this, in this field. And now if you are an individual that fits that profile, who says, hey, you know what, the reason I need this great customer service is because this is not the thing that I'm good at. Uh, this is not my expertise, then you know what? Now this message from this particular vendor is more differentiated than just, oh, we provide great customer service. So, you know, if you find yourself with a message that is in that sea of sameness, sometimes what you got to do is kind of dial it up, right? A little bit more like find the thing that is unique and interesting um, about your company and as it relates to your specific target audience to make it more relevant. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, I think think a lot of companies could need to look into how they're positioning themselves to, to break apart. Because as, as you know, and we were talking before the, the recording started about a few different tech platforms to help with audio and various things. Um, there's just so much competition and so much noise these days when it comes to probably many industries. Um, the great, great tips. Let me pivot for a second. One of the things I've been most interested to talk to you about is the concept that I know you you write about and talk about all the time, which is the challenges that um, younger sellers or newer sellers have when it comes to selling to buyers that are more experienced, more expert in their fields. This has always been really interesting to me because a lot of our a lot of our background at our company is ed tech. That's definitely not our only industry that we sell into, but it's, it's one of them. 
Um, and medical, medical sales in, in any sense is very similar where you might not have 20 years experience selling, let's use EdTech for a second, to superintendents. You've never been a teacher. You don't know what it's like to be a principal, but now you're selling someone who's at the top of their field. You talk about this a lot, and I'm really curious what, what you teach your clients about this topic, because many sellers aren't coming with the, the type of experience that even you did when you began selling. What, what do you talk about in that sense? Well, look, you know, when I started selling, I had zero experience. I didn't even know sales was a job you can do. And, but I've always been a conviction seller, meaning, you know, if I believe in something and I understand it, you know, I, I borrow this, this, uh, this sentiment from Simon Sinek, who's, I'm a big fan and, and he's a great speaker. And people ask him, they say, hey, you know, how did you become such a great speaker? And he says, you know, I, I cheat. I do two things. I only speak about things that I know about and I speak about things that I'm passionate about. And so when, when you think about something that you love, like something that you like, it could be a kind of music, a sport, a team, whatever it is, and think about how you would talk to someone about that thing, you would automatically manifest this amazing conviction and tone of voice that people can tell, people can tell. And I was actually recently reading a book uh, called Talk Like Ted, which is kind of like the secrets of you know, TED talkers and, and things that they do. And one of, there was a, a piece in it about uh, a fellow who trains um, like FBI agents, CIA agents, police officers, and so on in interrogation tactics. And he says, you know, when someone gets up on stage and they're talking about something that they don't believe in, it's exactly the same as interrogating a suspect who is lying to you, you know? And the, and the idea is like they train officers to be able to, to tell if someone's lying, but they've done these experiments with just, you know, normal you know, people off the street and people can also tell when other people are lying. Just the same way, you know, the same way, for example, I have three kids and when one of my kids comes to me and is about to hit me up for something, like a request, they want to download an app, they want a snack, they want to lift to the mall, you know, I can tell immediately, right, just by the way they approach me. And those of you who are listening, who have kids or relate to kids, you know, kids are very bad at hiding, you know, their intentions, but people are equally, <laughs> equally the same. And so, you know, the question is, if you're younger and less experienced in your sales career, and now I'm asking you to call on a more senior level decision maker, a buyer whose job you've never done. Okay. How do you feel about going toe to toe with that person? Not, per, not very well, I'm sure. And what's going to happen is that fear is going to manifest in your voice. And I heard this all the time. I, when I was at Salesforce, I, would, I managed a, a teams in a bunch of different cities. And one of the, the cities was New York. And in New York, my reps, like they hustled like no other city. Like they made the most calls, the most emails. The New York vibe is awesome. But sometimes I would see reps that would have tons of activity and no pipeline. And I would start listening to their calls and I would, I would just you know, close my eyes and listen to the tone of voice. And I would say, you know, it just sounds like you're bothering them. It just sounds like you feel you're bothering them because you don't know what to say or you're not gonna add value. Cause like, who the hell are you compared to this person, right? And so, you know, I talk, I, it's a concept I call experience asymmetry. And I talk about it um, in my book. I wrote a Harvard Business Review article about it as well. And so the, the trick lies in being able to, in many ways, manifest that conviction. There's a number of tactics to, to help overcome that asymmetry. But, but one of the, the ways is to help manifest that conviction so people can hear in your tone of voice that you're confident about what you have to, even if you're faking it, you know, in all fairness, even if you're faking it, manifest that conviction 
So they are confident in what you have to say and they, they perk up and listen. So that's one of the tactics that, you know, I teach to help people overcome that experience asymmetry. Let me give a, let me give an example that I think fits what you're describing. You can certainly tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but um, I think so. So my background um, was sales guy forever, all through high school, even college. Um, I, I was the jerk who I went to school. I know I told you I'm from Pittsburgh, but I went to school in Tampa, Florida. And I was the jerk that would call, call you if you left your business card in a fishbowl in a, in the diner somewhere for a, a vacation package. And uh, we sold timeshares. So yeah, lots of, lots of fun, very hard, very rewarding though. And, and I learned a lot about sales, but it was not, you know, solving the world's problems. And I wasn't passionate about it. So after college um, and a bunch of different sales jobs, I decided to go back to grad school to not be a sales guy. The irony is not lost on me with what I do for a living, but um, that was my intent, at least in my mid-20s. And first job out of grad school was, of course, sales. <laughs> and, and sales was, in this sense, a very professional sales atmosphere. So I, I was recruiting students to an online well, actually, we had campuses too, but my, my division was an online school, and the school itself was called the Art Institute. It was an art school. They had design, web, web design, graphic design, culinary, fashion, video, all sorts of different programs. And, okay, that's the backstory. The, the shorter conclusion of this story is all I focused on, I couldn't compete with what's the difference between your school and this other school, or this program or that program. I wasn't even an artist. So frankly, any creativity was lost on me. So talking to these folks was not challenging, but I, I didn't fit in, right? So it's similar, talking to a principal or talking to a surgeon. And what I did was I was so, and this was organic, but I was so gung-ho on school because I had just finished graduate school. And that was really, to me, in my in my educational career, I didn't really hit stride until grad school. I was like a B, B or C student all through college, and then finally straight A's in grad school because I loved what I was studying. And I was so, for the first time in my life, gung-ho pro-education, like you've got to do it. Anyway, long story short, my entire focus on the phones, selling potential students, working with their families, my entire focus was if I can spend time getting this person through through all the right tactics, asking questions, learning about their dreams, but selling them. If I could sell them on going to college, most of the time they will pick mine. And that, it was that simple. It was that simple. I'd spend an hour with a student convincing him or her, going to college is better than not going to college for what you want to do in your career, based on what they wanted to, literally what they wanted to do, right? And if I could convince them to go to school, nine out of 10 times they were coming to my school and I was successful because of that one strategy, which I said was organic because I really believed it. Is, is that an example of, of a way somebody in an early stage career or someone that doesn't fit in with their buyers necessarily can, can influence that process? Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, you know, in this case, you found an anchor, right? Something that allowed you to manifest that conviction, which is really what you need. 
right? And so the idea is in order to manifest that conviction, you need to figure out what that anchor is. And, you know, unfortunately, if you don't have a lot of passion or conviction, what you're selling, then that's going to be hard or harder to do. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that's the trick is like, find that anchor. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, one of the things when I would go into boardrooms when I was, uh, you know, so I was 25 when I got into sales and we go into these boardrooms and we were selling to you know, big manufacturers, you know, airlines, banks, uh, you know, big manufacturing companies, retailers, and so on. You know, people would joke, a lot of these companies, they would use systems that were older than I was. And I remember in a boardroom one day, one of the fellows joked, he's like, Oh, we, we probably got, you know, we got systems in here that are older than you, David. And then I started talking about, you know, what it was that we did and how we could help and, you know, about their business. And I showcased my industry knowledge. And by the end, the, uh, the fellow said, uh, well, I think if we had an old guy come in here and talk to us about the latest technology, we wouldn't have believed him. Right. So I think when you can come, <laughs> come back and relate like your experience, your story, your knowledge, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily how old you are if you are speaking that language of the customer and, and almost like reaching inside their head as you did and kind of, you know, pull out their thoughts, pull out their fears, pull out what they're thinking, use the right lingo and convert them. So, yeah, I think, you know, the trick is being able to find what that hook is for you. So we, we're talking about from the seller's point of view and, and how to find a way to manifest an, an anchor passion the, the ability to have these conversations. Let's talk about the buyer side of this. I know you talk about the experience is the product and how sellers can create great customer experiences. And that, that's all focused on the buyer. How do these things kind of play in? Granted, that, that guy in the boardroom knew that a young 25-year-old tech um, native is probably best to have this discussion versus a 60 year old sales vet. But what are, what are some other ways that we can create really great experiences for the buyer to, to feel great through the entire process and, and take action? Yeah. Well, one of the easiest ways is to give them permission, give your customer permission to say no, right? Cause one of the biggest challenges in modern selling is that as salespeople, we like to hear yes. And we hate maybe because maybe is just a, you know, a nice way of saying no, it just takes longer and we just lose slower. And so no is actually the second best answer. And you know, studies and research have shown is that when people feel comfortable saying no, they're more likely to engage and they're more likely to, to say yes. And so you know, that's the easiest tactic. And in fact, you see this a lot, let's we'll take it out of the, the kind of the, you think about the, the B2B sales realm for a second and think about what happens when you go into the mall and you walk into a clothing store and you start thumb, thumbing through the merchandise and a salesperson comes over to you and says, oh, excuse me, sir, ma'am, can I help you find something? What do you say? Typically, like, no, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, so you're <laughs> like, no, because like, I don't want to say yes, because if I say yes, then I'm, I'm basically giving you permission and consent to do all your sleazy sales things to me. And so I usually say no, because even if I might need help later on, I'm now in a position of defense, right? And, and they've done experiments in this area. And imagine what would happen if that same salesperson came up to you and said, excuse me, sir, can I help you find something? And then look, and if you're totally fine looking on your own, go, go ahead. I, you know, I don't, I don't need to help you, right? And, and they just let you say no. You know, statistically, if they let you say no, it's actually more likely now because you don't feel the pressure to engage 
you might say, you know what, actually, I might need some help in this area because you told me it was okay to say no. And so that's one of the, the, the easiest ways that you can help get a customer to engage and help them make, make them feel comfortable because the idea is you don't want them to feel pressure because if they feel pressure from you, they're going to automatically resist. It's a scientific principle known as reactance. It's just the automatic resistance when people feel that their freedom to choose has been limited. And so if you take that pressure off, they're going to be more likely to engage. It's the same way, you know, if you reach out to you know, a prospect over email and you, you've connected a bunch of times, and you've actually added value and you say, hey, you know what? Like if, you know, the per person says, hey, look, I love your product, but it's too expensive. And maybe you do have the most expensive product on the market and there's good reason for that. You can say, hey, look, totally understand how you feel. You know, we are, you know, if you line up a bunch of solutions, we're probably going to be one of the most expensive on the market. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. You might want to go into those reasons, but hey, look, you know, if, if those reasons, if those, the reasons why we're so expensive and we deliver the, the solution and maybe it's the, the care, the support, the technology, if that is not aligned with your interests, well, then it's okay. Like, we don't have to continue the conversation. So t please tell me no. Like, I, last thing I, would, I want you to do is spend money on something that you don't feel is valuable, right? When you take that pressure off, it makes it more likely that they're going to engage and say, okay, well, let's, let's continue the conversation. That is fantastic. You, you bring such a great authentic understanding of personal relationships. And I know you've, you've done a ton of research and you bring a lot of research to it um, in, from a scientific standpoint as well. But it, it, it also can be boiled down to is like, just be a normal dude. Like people <laughs> like buying from people that they like. And for the ladies out there, certainly be a normal lady dude, right? Just be, be yourself, be authentic. And people will respect that and, and implement some of these wonderful strategies to um, also, also facilitate that comfort, I suppose. And I know you, you talk about that. That's sort of what this is boiling down to is giving them comfort in the process. Absolutely. So, Tell, tell us a little bit more about, um, you're almost off the hot seat here. Certainly want to, want to get you going for the rest of your day, but, but people need to read your book. People need to come and check out some of your content and, and see how you can help certain organizations. I know you have a really good website that lists out the, the types of folks you help and, and how you help them. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about you in particular and how we can find you and all of those things. Yeah, so I try to concentrate as much as I can on my website. So that's a good single point to, to branch off to everything else. The website is Cerebral Selling, kind of one, one word, no, no spaces or blanks or periods.com. So cerebralselling.com. Um, the book is called Sell the Way You Buy, uh, which you can find out about on the website, but you can also get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Indigo or wherever you get books. Um, it's there. Super grateful that the book has been been really popular since it's been out, uh, became a bestseller. So that's awesome. It's on the website as well. And uh, I have a YouTube channel where I give away. It's interesting, you know, when you think about content, I found everyone likes something different. Some people like podcasts. Some people love quick two, three minute videos. Some people love kind of the, the full long article. Some people love the books. So I try to, you know, provide, you know, different sources of content for people. Um, the YouTube channel, which is also Cerebral Selling, uh, you can look up on YouTube, uh, but everything can be accessed from the website, CerebralSelling.com. You can also hit me up on LinkedIn. I know a lot of people like to do that and, uh, and follow me there. So by all means, I'm always happy to connect with people and, and help where I can. And you'll know if you are on the right website 
um, homepage, cerebralselling.com. If you see David on a panel working with uh, a variety of panelists, talking, talking, I assume, to several hundred people at an event. And most importantly, his second pane down on his homepage, you'll find a teenage version of David with <laughs> crazy long hair. And I'm guessing is that that's got to be the early to mid nineties, um, big glasses. And, and I love it. I love, I love the, speaking of authenticity, I love the fact that you have that photo for, for thousands of people a month to see. <laughs> well, for no other reason, go to the website to see that was photo was taken in uh, the summer of 1997 at the atmosphere. <laughs> atmosphere chemistry lab <laughs> where I worked. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny when you think about, you know, what should you do in your career? And we're, this is not necessarily related to sales, but this is something a lot of people grapple with, which is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is a question I ask people regardless of how old they are. And, you know, sometimes you just have to kind of look back and look at the trends and patterns in your, in your life and your experiences. And I always loved figuring stuff out. And I, you know, I was an engineer um, you know, research scientists, I love figuring stuff out. I love figuring out like why things worked and why they didn't and what the rules were that govern kind of how things worked. And, um, and I've always loved to do that. That's why I've done four startups is because I just love to figure stuff out. You know, I, I love sales because it's actually really hard sales. It's really, it's a really hard profession and it's always changing. And so I was always just very curious. And so, you know, now when I, when I was thinking a few years ago about starting my practice, um, you know, that's kind of where I went back to. I said, what's the thing that I just love doing the most, um, you know, irrespective of what the job title was. And it was just learning and teaching. And so that's what I, that's kind of how I decided to go in this route. But when you look back at that picture from 1997, it's still, that's still what I love to do way back then. So it's, 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 it's interesting when you think about what should you, what should you, what should you do in your career is try to find these trends and patterns. And, and usually those will lead you in the right direction. That is a wonderful conclusion. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for giving us this great insight here. I, I really do hope people can go onto Amazon or, or any other method to, to buy the book, Sell the Way You Buy. It is something that many sales trainers and sales vets leadership talk about the buyer experience. You, you put it in a really great format for people to understand how to how to think like your buyers and how to make them comfortable going through the process. I, I'm really glad that you and I had a chance to talk and very thankful that you you shared such great insight on today's call. Hey, no, look, thanks for inviting me, Dan. It's, it's my pleasure. Awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, again, David Premer, author of Sell the Way You Buy and founder of Cerebral Selling, please visit him at cerebralselling.com. David, it's awesome having you. I hope we can, we can catch up again soon. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much again. All right.